Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 2 of Escaping Collectivism. This week we'll be discussing the possibility of World War III, and the likelihood that it will, if it kicks off, it will be a three-front war. So to begin with, the possible three fronts are obviously Ukraine, uh, China invading Taiwan, and we've also got some interesting things heating up in the Middle East, uh, but we'll get to that momentarily. So to begin with, uh, U.S. involvement in Ukraine has been pretty substantial. Uh, we've invested over $50 billion. Um, let's just run through some of the more recent ones. Uh, we've begun to pledge to send long-range smart bombs. Uh, we do potentially launch a 250-pound bomb uh, close to 100 miles and some even further. Uh, we've sent Bradley tanks. Um, we have allowed and helped pay for Germany to send tanks um, we have provided, uh, we gave a 1.85 billion package that allowed for us to send Patriot surface-to-air missiles as well as joint direct attack mission kits. So a, G a joint direct attack mission kit, or a JDAM, is a guidance system that you can equip to an old tech bomb that allows it to turn into a smart bomb that you can navigate to a target. Uh, we've also provided drones. Uh, we have not to this point provided uh, a Reaper drone. Uh, we have provided suicide drones and uh, surveillance drones. Let's see. We, so we are continuing to send money and arms. Uh, for example, in the last 48 billion, this is from November of last year, with 22.9 billion of that being in military aid, whether it be with arms and armaments and not, not just funding. Um, we have been using the presidential action, the PDA, which allows for the president to send our defense capabilities and our weapons to Ukraine without approval for Congress. Um, we'll come back to the constitutionality of that. And then moving on to China and Taiwan, so uh, per some CIA reports that have been going through our news system lately, China is preparing to invade by Taiwan by 2027. Uh, Biden has stated multiple times the U.S. will militarily defend Taiwan. Um, now, that's been walked back by the White House. But the, our, our president, the commander-in-chief of the military, has stated on multiple occasions we will defend Taiwan. Uh, they've also flown at least one balloon over the continental U.S., if, if not more, uh, depending on which reports you're reading. It was either just the one during the Biden administration or there were three during the Trump administration. Um, seems questionable, but we'll, we'll get to that story. And then in the Middle East, um, we have Israel, which is we are allied with economically. So just as strongly as we are Ukraine, there, there are no existing arms treaties between um, Israel and the U.S., or according to our uh, U.S. embassy in Ukraine, there are no recognized arms treaties between us. So we're, we're tied just as closely with Israel as we are with Ukraine, if not uh, closer with some of our economic ties. Um, and Israel has recently attacked um, a facility in Iran uh, to they're claiming that it was a uh, nuclear arms facility, and they were wanting to remove that threat. Um, but besides that, it is a sovereign state attacking another sovereign state, which is an act of war. Um, 
So let's let's get into the nuance of everything that's going on and, and how especially the Ukraine situation looks extremely similar to what we had going on prior to World War One. Um, so World War One kicked off in 1914. The U.S. was neutral until 1917. Uh, so let's let's kind of go over some of the timeline. So a big one that a lot of people will remember is there was the sinking of the Lusitania, um, which happened in 1915, and it caused the death of over a thousand civilians. Uh, what gets talked about a little bit less is the fact that there were 173 tons of munitions bound for the British Army. So when the U.S., when World War I kicked off, in 1914, U.S.'s involvement under Woodrow Wilson was pretty much, we are going to maintain neutrality. We have uh, trade agreements with both sides, um, but then you have the naval blockade that Britain put in place, so we were unable to trade with Germany, so we exclusively traded with Britain. We also bankrolled Britain and France, providing funding um, and tons of arms. We did not provide any of this to Germany, which is one of the reasons that Germany was pushing unrestricted submarine warfare because there was no way they could combat um, Britain and France. The U.S. funding them and providing arms had given them, an, given the Allies, an unbeatable advantage. So the reason that I bring this up is this is very similar to what's going on in Ukraine. Is We are technically, well, we haven't even claimed to stay neutral. We claim to be neutral in World War One. In this one, we are not even claiming to be neutral. We are swearing to support Ukraine. We are sending military arms. In Biden's most recent State of the Union, he said we will continue to support Ukraine as long as it takes. So the issue is, is once we provide enough aid to Ukraine that outpaces Russia's ability to overcome it. So when we provide some type of tech or enough support to them that we are going to beat Russia's size advantage that they have naturally, then Russia will no longer just be stating um, that, you know, we're being aggressive and that this is not how diplomatic relationships should work. Uh, they will see that as an act of war and will act on it as an act of war because we will have put ourselves into a border dispute with a country that we have no treaties with. Um, and part of the reason is, you know, Ukraine wanted to join NATO and the EU. Okay, well, Article 2 of NATO talks about that none of the membership of NATO uh, are allowed to advance any economic policies that will push for cause aggression. Uh, we, we have agreed when we signed this document that we would not push for anything. So NATO was also in response to creation of the USSR, and it was to fight against the um, growing satellite states, stop the spread of communism, so on and so forth, that's been discussed ad nauseum. Um, but so when we when we were talking with Ukraine, and, and when Western Europe was talking with Ukraine, and we were saying, hey, you can come join the EU, uh, Russia took that as a direct threat. Uh, now that we're also saying that we're going to allow Sweden and Finland, which are closer in proximity uh, with Russia, that we're wanting to admit them to NATO, that is an ongoing discussion right now, we are putting treaties and economics agreements in places where they have not existed before and allowing us to move what Russia views as we could move weaponry into those states, put them right on Russia's border, and point them directly at us. It, it's similar in the same aspect if Russia went to Canada and said, hey, 
let's uh let's make a team um you know we're gonna you're gonna join with us and we're gonna put missiles if we want to right on the border of the u.s now the u.s would rightly see that as a threat but we are continuing to send support extended military aid we are sending more and more lethal aid it is no longer just the humanitarian effort that it was initially sold as um you know it, it now with the leopard tanks that germany has sent there's discussion of um you can use depleted uranium core bullets which are used in battle due to their extreme weight which allows for greater pigmentation against armored vehicles such as other tanks or other armament russia has stated that if any of those depleted uranium cores are used that they will be viewed as a nuclear attack um, and we, we've had escalations the russian generals have changed the ukrainian generals have changed and we've continued to have this ongoing escalation uh, but so far, it seems that Ukraine has been able to, to hold its own due, due to the U.S. aid and the NATO aid, because really this is, this is NATO supporting uh, Ukraine. But they've been able to continue to maneuver because they've been able to maneuver across fields and uh, without roads because Russia has greatly controlled the roads. So come spring, if it's a wet spring, if it's looking like it may be, then... Russia will have control of the roads, and Ukraine is going to be in some serious trouble. And this is when the question of how much aid are we going to supply, because Ukraine is, is going to need a lot. Um, now, Russia could do a number of things to end this war quickly once the springtime comes. They could use a small uh, tactical nuke which is some things that people have speculated against um, or about, not against. I, I think it's, it's possible that they would do that. Um, I think it's actually more likely that they would use something called a high-altitude electromagnetic pulse. So it's, it's also known as a HEMP. Um, what this is, this is where you take uh, a nuclear device, you, using a balloon or a missile, you detonate it at a um, minimum of 30 miles off of the ground. So, for instance, this is from a congressional report on just that. So if, if somebody had detonated an EMP 30 miles off the ground, just the, about the same height that that balloon that China flew over was, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that and how much of a threat that was. If you detonate an EMP off the ground about 30 miles up, the low range, it will take at least three months to rebuild all of the electronics, all the communications, get everything functioning again. On the high end of this, if it was a larger yield warhead that was exploded, it could take up to three years to rebuild everything. By this point, without communications and without discussions, Russia would roll completely over Ukraine, um, take, seizing everything. And then, one, this is completely non-lethal. So at the altitude that it's going, the radioactive fallout is negligible, uh, which is one of the reasons that when this is discussed and is a, is a possible risk and threat against the U.S., policy against it becomes very, very hard, because how do you respond to an attack that is completely non-lethal? It has thrown you 200 years back. We've taken all electricity. There is no communication. We've wiped all of that. But in the initial blast, it has killed no one. So 
if you could, which there's a possibility that you would not be able to respond at all, but if you could respond, do you respond with a nuke that immediately blows up and kills tens of millions of people, depending on where you're landing it, what the size of the warhead is, but do you immediately turn around and create a mass casualty event in response to a completely non-lethal uh, tactic? And that's a, that's a question that the U.S. has struggled with in our, our planning for the congressional reports. Um, and I think the answer was probably no. Um, you, you can't turn around and be the aggressor that after somebody put a couple of your states you know, back 200 years, that all of a sudden you're going to kill tens of millions of people. You will immediately lose the PR war, which is something that the West has had in its favor. They've really kept up the good PR, um, and, the, and they have won the public relations front. It's depending on what sources you're reading and whether what news sources you're talking about. They're either winning or losing in, the, in Ukraine as far as the tactical front goes. But we, they are winning the PR war. Um, but while we're on the topic of the high-altitude EMP, um, well, let's go ahead and swap over and start talking about this balloon that China floated over that we picked up on January 28th before it reached the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska. This is one of the most remotely populated areas in the world. Um, I'm pretty sure there are more grizzly bears there than people. Uh, we did not pop it because we wanted for our Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, to be able to go have his visit with China. So instead, we said, you know what? We will observe it. We're going to let it come all the way across the U.S., down through Montana, over across and out past South Carolina. So we're going to let it go all the way across the U.S., and then we're going to blow it up before it reaches international waters, which is 12 miles off the coast. Um, this balloon was flying at roughly 60,000 feet. It was able to navigate. There were reports of it stopping and, and pausing, and it was pausing over some of our Air Force installments and some of our ICBM, which is our nuclear silos. But this balloon is flying exactly the threat that was discussed in this congressional report, and this congressional report will be linked in the description along with multiple other news sources. Um, this would cause a 7% reduction in the nation's gross domestic product, which in 2008 was $770 billion. So it is significantly higher there. The, the cost is extreme. The amount of time where you would completely wipe out all infrastructure is up to and, and a little bit over three years. It, it would completely annihilate the electric grid, communications, um, electronics. No modern cars would work. Um, but th the scary thing is this is small, and this would have taken out, if, if they had detonated in this threat example that's given, over the Washington, D.C. area would take out Washington, D.C., Maryland, and parts of Virginia. You'd have about two and a half, three states that would be impacted pretty severely. You would still have, see these times that are estimated, are with the ability of all the other states to surge support to help rebuild. Now then, if you took a balloon or a weather balloon or another device to allow a warhead to detonate at 300 miles off the ground, you would essentially take out all of North America. It would impact almost all of Canada, all 48 of the continental U.S. states, most of Alaska, and most of Mexico. 
and recovery at that point would be almost impossible. You would instantly put the U.S. back into the Dark Ages. Not the, well, not the Dark Ages, but 200 years ago, nobody's driving a car, um, and everybody who's thinking that, oh, well, I have a gas generator. Yes, but was your gas generator in a... Was it protected from the EMP blast? Might have been. So let's say you have some fuel. You've got a couple gallons of fuel. You can run your generator for a little while, but it won't last forever. And the thing is, is this would impact it. It would take years to rebuild. And the two countries at 2008 and that to this day that are not allies with us that have the ability to do this are Russia and China. And we continue to poke the bear of Russia. We, we're just turning over and letting China do what it wants. Now, we blew up the balloon but not until after it had passed all the way over the United States. We detected it on January 28th, and we could have taken it out before it was ever over the U.S. and caused a possible threat. So the argument that, oh, we wanted to wait, we didn't want to drop anything, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't want anything about hitting it, you know, we didn't want anybody hitting the head, we, we were worried about the debris fallout, is a lie. We, we could have taken this out well, well before there was a threat of dropping debris on anyone. And for the argument of, what if it has explosives? What if it has a bioweapon? What if it has a bomb? Why would you allow that device to float if you picked it up before it came in contact with continental U.S.? Why would you allow it to float all the way across the U.S. when if it has a bomb or if it has a biological device of any kind, all you're allowing it to do is get to its target. You would take it out before it posed a threat, and that is before it hits the Aleutian Islands when we first detected it. And we didn't. We allowed them to just run right over it. Uh, we've, you know, our, our White House, which is unelected staff, um, the executive branch besides the president, where they're stating that, no, we're not going to do anything to militarily defend Taiwan, and they're they walked back Biden multiple times saying that we would militarily defend Taiwan. Um, and we're just letting China walk all over us, do what they want. They're preparing to invade Taiwan. We've said nothing about it um, besides that we have a split military. Um, and the commander in chief would like to go, but it seems like the joint chief of staffs will probably tell him no, and he's going to listen. There's also the fact that through the presidential actions that have not been approved by Congress to send these weapons to Ukraine, we have disarmed the U.S. We are demilitarizing ourselves when we have increased instability in the world. We are continuing to cause possible issues down the line. We are, we are taking away the ability of the U.S. to defend itself. We are not hitting recruiting numbers, and we're sending all of our tech over to Ukraine. This does not set up well for when you have a, an unstable world and you have stuff kicking off on three different fronts. Um, and the congressional action of that is just, I'm not exactly sure which laws were passed. It was most likely done under uh, Bush with after 9-11, um, and we created our intelligence state. Um, but let's go back to the Constitution. And Article 2, Section 2, the president is in charge of the armies, but Congress, per Article 1, Section 8, is in charge of declaring war and raising funds. And they can only raise funds for two years without reapproval. And we have not declared war on anyone since World War II. We haven't had Congress declare war against the state. It's been war on terror. We've 
Congress's approved actions in the Middle East, but we have not officially declared war. But we're continuing to spread ourselves thin and send aid. And what's coming next is sending personnel. There's, unless we pull out and we, we recognize that it, it's a horrible humanitarian thing that's going on in Ukraine, but there's nothing we can do without declaring war. We need to pull out and allow, and at least encourage Ukraine and Russia to have peace talks, which were on the table at the beginning. A lot of this had to do with the concern that if Ukraine became a European Union member and a member of NATO, that Russia would lose access to its fleet in the Black Sea. So currently they have the bridge through Crimea. Um, we, you had the operation of the Little Green Men, which occurred under Obama, where uh, you had Russian soldiers who Russia said was not Russian soldiers, but everyone knew that they were, who took over uh, a Crimean region. And we have the Crimea Bridge that, go, that connects Ukraine and Russia. So Russia was really interested in the, for this current conflict in the Dundas region, which allowed them direct land access to the Black Sea so they can get to their fleet. Uh, so in the original peace talks, one of the stipulations that kept coming up was that Russia would keep part of the Donbass region so that they could not just do what Ukraine did or attempted to do where they attempted to blow up the Crimean Bridge where Russia would be unable to get to its fleet. Um, and we've also, you know, financially sanctioned them to nothing. We've, we've cut off and turned off the gas uh, as much as we can. And now there's possible reporting that, you know, the, the White House and the intelligence agencies are denying it, but you have a report coming out that the U.S. may have been involved in the blowing up Nord Stream, which makes sense. Well, it makes a lot more sense than Russia, than the original story saying that Russia blew it up itself. Because Russia control, if Russia does not want to send gas to Germany, which is where the Nord Stream pipeline deads in out, it ends at, then they could just turn off the gas, which they had done. There was, there was no reason for Russia to blow up its own pipeline when they controlled the supply. But the possible U.S. motivations behind blowing up the pipeline, it would prevent Germany from going back on sanctions. Those sanctions have a timeline, and when they run out, and when German citizens are freezing, Germany can go, I'm done, Russia, turn the gas back on, we will do whatever you want, just please, please don't make us freeze. Because Germany had denuclearized, they had pretty much kneecapped themselves as far as their energy policy goes, and they were dependent on Russian natural gas. Um, now we've known about this dependency since the early 2000s, and this was, there was an attempt to get past this, and it was called the uh, Qatar-Turkey Pipeline, or Qatar-Turkey Pipeline. It's a pipeline that would run from Qatar up through the Middle East, through Syria, and into Turkey, and then Turkey would be able to supply gas directly to uh, West Germany, and that gas would be European Union funded and sourced. It would be run by one of the companies that are friendly with the European Union. Uh, this would mean that it would break Russia's direct pipeline at, well, it wouldn't break their direct access, but it would increase competition, which would mean they would have less of an ability to price fix and make a profit. Uh, Syria turned this offer down, 
Uh, they said, no, we will not let you run a pipeline through us. Um, we are, uh, Syria is allied with Russia. And then shortly after that, uh, there just so happens to be a civil war in Syria. Um, and it's, it would not be the first time that the U.S. has been involved in, you know, overthrowing a regime. You have the Gaddafi regime in Libya, um, where Hillary, under Hillary Clinton, Hillary Clinton as our um, Secretary of State, she's famous for saying, we came, we saw, he died. Um, and we, we were involved in throwing Libya into a complete state of disarray. Uh, so the the possibility that the U.S. was involved, involved in the um, Syrian disruption and civil war is not surprising, especially considering we still have troops in Syria to this day. Um, it, it is a fractured area, the area that was impacted by this most recent um, the earthquake that's killed thousands and thousands of people is in an area that's controlled by uh, Turkish forces. Turkey is part of NATO. It is also uh, so it's allied with the U.S. Um, and therefore the rest of the Syrian, the main Syrian government is not sending aid to them. Um, and since Russia is on the Security Council for UN, they actually limited the number of places to one border crossing where aid is able to go back and forth, and that's from Turkey into Syria. Turkey, who is also suffering the devastating effects from this earthquake, is not sending any aid through, at least not, not quickly and not to the amount that's needed. And this is a humanitarian crisis that was not caused. I mean, it was a natural crisis. There was no impact. We played no role in it. And yet we don't seem to be as interested in helping these folks out. Um, in fact, I don't even remember it being discussed in State of the Union. just seems to be slipping past. Uh, so we as Americans seem to be very picky and selective about which humanitarian crisis we talk about. We, we also discuss the, we, we don't seem to discuss the humanitarian crisis of the, uh, the Uyghurs, the Uyghur Muslims in China that are um, being forced to do slave labor, that are raped and imprisoned by the Han Chinese. Uh, but we, we care a whole lot about Ukraine. There's a lot of on Twitter, there, there's quite a few people who have the Ukrainian flag in their bio because they're waving and supporting. But I'll be interested to see what happens when Uncle Sam knocks on your door and says, Hey, well, we're at war, and uh, since nobody's wanting to join the army, you're up to go. And I, I think that if, if you've got a Ukrainian flag in your bio, and you've been saying that we should be supporting this and going forward with it, especially if you are a congressman or senator who's pushed for the aid, the lethal aid that we continue to support with Ukraine, where we are trying to repeat our mistakes of World War One. If it's one of you, you should be the first to go. If you want this war so bad, you get to go fight it. We have ten congressmen who, uh, under the leadership of Matt Gates have put out a joint resolution to remove and stop sending aid to Ukraine. This is reported by Newsweek. Let me give you the full list. There are 10 Republicans who have supported this. We have Rep. Andy Biggs of Arizona, Lauren Boebert of Colorado, 
Paul Gosar of Arizona, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, Anna Paulina Luna of Florida, Thomas Massey of Kentucky, Mary Miller of Illinois, Barry Moore of Alabama, Ralph Norman of South Carolina, and Matt Rosendale of Montana are all endorsing this bill to stop funding for the Ukrainian war. This is also on top of there have been multiple Ukrainian officials now who have been indicted for fraud. They have wasted the funds we've sent them. Ukraine is not this bastion of freedom that everyone keeps pushing it for. They're, they're very anti-LGBT. They're anti a lot of these leftist policies. They are a hotbed for corruption. Their president was a comedian who his best bit was playing the piano with his penis. But we continue to support them and go about this as if they are just the epitome of what a free, liberal state looks like. And by supporting and continuing aid, all we are doing is extending the war. We are going to involve more loss of life. And it's going to be go from a localized suffering to a global suffering. And this is not a country we have a treaty with. If our White House executive branch is backtracking Biden and saying we will not go and militarily defend Taiwan, who supports us with chips. We get a lot of technology made there. They are pretty key to a lot of our building and functionality and tech that um, we innovate and design. But we won't go, we're saying we will not go defend them, but we're going to go defend Ukraine, which for the most part does not provide the U.S. a whole bunch of aid. Now what they do provide is a whole bunch of grains to the rest of the world. They have been, uh, while this has been going on, they have been unable to ship grains out, which means that countries in Africa, where they are unable to produce such grains, are suffering. The longer we continue the aid and we continue to supply just enough aid and funding to the Ukrainians to keep going, the longer we extend this humanitarian crisis that is impacting the rest of the world. There is no easy answer to fix this. This is a hard question that has to be asked. This is a hard solution. But getting the U.S. involved in a military action should require Congress to declare war. And I think that if you vote for war, then you should have to go and fight it. Because I do not want to go fight this war. I have no interest in it. We are also arguing to defend, and we are saying we will, we will continue to support Ukraine and its border while we have the most porous border we could possibly have. We, we do not care. We have hundreds of thousands of pounds of fentanyl coming across. They captured 23,000 pounds of fentanyl. What is failed to be discussed in that is that typically the estimation is that they're only capturing 5 to 10% of the drugs that come across. So let's say it was on the high end. They're capturing 10% of the drugs crossing the southern border. 23,000 pounds means that they are crossing 230,000 pounds of fentanyl a year. That is insane. Washington State in Seattle 
there was a story about how we were running out of rooms for the bodies for all of the fentanyl overdoses. So we will continue to defend another country's border, but we will not shore up our own. We have lethal drugs pouring across. And per a Vice documentary, these drugs are being made by Mexican cartels, but it's China who is sending over cooks to teach them how to make these drugs. China is launching a new version of the opium wars against the U.S. We're letting them do that. We've let them fly balloons over. What happens when the next balloon has a one megaton EMP or a one megaton warhead and they detonate it a couple hundred miles up in the atmosphere over Kansas and we go dark? You don't even have to invade. You've taken the U.S. off of the map. We continue to roll over. We continue to send aid to different countries. We are spending money we do not have and we are getting rid of the few arms that we do. We are disarming ourselves and leaving ourselves wide open for attacks. So what I would like everyone to think about is the threatening position that we are in and the fact that if World War III kicks off, we may not win this one. We have sent so many weapons. We don't have the money for it. We're allowing our enemies to test and push our boundaries further than they ever should have been able to. We're showing just how weak and unwilling to act we are. While at the same time, it seems like doing everything we can to escalate the war in Ukraine and get more and more involved. Why our leaders are pushing us closer and closer to war is an answer that can only be speculated. Maybe we're being involved in the Ukrainian war to make up for the fact that our military, military industrial complex lost all of its no-bid contracts, the open contracts, the money that was war in the Middle East. We pulled out of Afghanistan and lots and lots of companies lost billions of dollars. But if we're sending it all to Ukraine, well, there's their funding again. And this is just like from uh, George Orwell's 1984. It's not that a war is meant to win anything. These endless wars are meant to consume the goods of people to give them something to watch and to keep their standard of living low. There's always an excuse as to why it's bad. We can point over here, it's someone else's fault. Like, oh, this is, this is all Putin's fault. While we're failing to address the fact that we have sky-high inflation, go groceries are going through the roof, and U.S. citizens are, not, are struggling to pay their own bills. But instead, we're gonna send funding and arms and eventually people to these wars. So for anyone who's listening whose congressman was not one of those 10 who's supporting the removal of Ukraine, I would suggest contacting your congressman and asking them to endorse this bill because you would like to have a place for your children to grow up. Because you enjoy the freedoms that we have as America. And because you would like America to go back to listening 
and reading the Constitution to know what's going on and to understand that these acts of war that are done unilaterally by the president and done without Congress declaring war are unconstitutional. We are breaking our founding document. So that, that is the real State of the Union. We're very close to war, and it's a war that we most likely will not win. <laughs>